Before we get to all that nonsense, uh, <laughs> I do want to bring up that, you know, we've been talking a lot about Jeff Bezos over the last few weeks. Uh, Ed and I went on Alex Press's new podcast, Primed, um, about Amazon to talk about, the, about Amazon's financials and things like that. But, you know, somebody that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about um, and she deserves her due too. You know, we, we got to do feminism here. We got to look at her just as much as we look at, at Jeff. Uh, Mackenzie Scott's in the news again because she's she's trying desperately to give away all her ex-husband's money. Um, and she's she's announced uh, another, as the New York Times headline put it, Mackenzie Scott reveals another $2.74 billion in giving. Don't don't we love our 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 our, our rich philanthropic billionaires who just just giving away all their money yeah i'm, I'm gonna start an org so i can get some money for her from her and you know fund some gorillas in the mountains or something i mean like i am it is like interesting also to see how the times coverage of the uh philanthropic um splurge has been like this is an unconventional method and we don't know if it's gonna work, but it was really inspiring. <laughs> as a you know, as opposed to like having actual social uh, spending or you know money being poured into people who need it. But I don't know the the philanthrop. I feel like the philanthropic the philanthropic move by her is also for some people gonna erode like what was the past few years of criticisms about philanthropy. You know, with the Sacklers or with Bezos or with William Gates. Gates. The man who invented going on the computer, as Trash Future calls him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he made the internet. It wasn't Gore. It was, it was propaganda by Al Gore. It was actually Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, we've made a lot of progress over the past few years of talking about how philanth philanthropy just, like, whitewashes capitalism. And then Bezos, S Scott, is coming in and being like, actually, like, I've given, what is it, $8 billion in two years? No, she's given away, uh, yeah, she's donated a total of $8 billion um, over the last couple of years. So but more, her more wealth has accumulated by about $25 billion in that same amount of time as well. She's just hustling, dude. Don't knock her for the hustle. <laughs> Yeah, of these giving pledge people, have any of their net worths actually gone down since they swore to give away all their money? I feel like J.K. Rowling is the only one, and she didn't sign the fucking pledge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's called the turf tax. She's yeah, actually, actually taxes, but it's the turf yeah. tax. <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense. I feel like all these rich people with their wealth trying to give their money away is that meme with a broken window. Instead of taking my two fresh copies of Heigl, they put two more. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i i mean I, I already got people like these people come out of the woodworks right i already got people being like mckinsey is actually way better than her ex-husband so maybe don't snipe at her and and all i gotta say yeah. is you gotta get a radicalism and a leftism that can do both right, right. <laughs> that, that you know there's a, there's enough room in the in the reticle there's enough room on the wall for uh for jeff and mckinsey <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, what's really interesting about the Mackenzie Scott discourse is that there's there are defenders who are trying to defend her from a feminist angle, 
Right. And I think this was happening um, a lot, especially when they were getting divorced and it was announced that she would be receiving, you know, a certain portion of uh, their joint wealth. And, you know, there are people who are saying like, oh, she should get half. She should get half her husband's wealth because, you know, she raised the kids or whatever. or was just otherwise providing reproductive labor. It's like, yes, she was. But also, OK, she should get half of her husband's wealth, which should, should be like nothing. Right. Or it should be like substantially lower. And so mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting that um, you there are people who are able to defend her and recognize that she is providing some sort of value and that should entitled her should entitled her to some share of, you know, their joint wealth. And yet they're not able to recognize that for the workers who made Amazon into what it is. It's like, oh, well, they're married. So therefore she she deserves half. But the workers, oh, they don't they don't deserve anything more than they're offered um, in mm-hmm. their contracts. And it's just like, why, why are people not able to to see that this is inconsistent? You can't actually be a feminist and also think that Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Bezos should split like $150 billion or whatever it is. Right. Especially when Bezos is a fucking libertarian freak, right? Or, you know, or an objectivist. Like that man... What is that expose by the Times was talking about how he believes everyone is inherently lazy and that's part of why he's so anti-union and anti-like worker, pro-worker policies at Amazon is because he believes that like it it breeds mediocrity and that his jobs are temp jobs. And it's like, that's just like, that's Atlas Shrugged 50 page um, rant about money at the end of the book talk, you know, like that's someone who it's not hard to be better than that. You know, it's really, it's really not. It's really not. I'm sure most of the billionaires are. You it's know? very funny that this that this like New York Times uh, story and like you know McKinsey's like you know reputation laundering is coming out the same exact time as ProPublica's big IRS tax uh, oh, yeah. files <laughs> reporting. Right? It's like, man, we know what philanthropy uh, is for, right? It's for avoiding taxes. Like, come on, come on, bro. <laughs> like, like if 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 McKinsey really wanted to get rid of all this money. She'd cash out all of that Amazon stock, pay, you know, top capital gains tax on it, pay more taxes on top of it. Right. And then and then at the end of the day, give away all that cash, you know, all that that stack of money instead of literally not able to give her money away fast enough (laughs) before it accumulates. But Jason, then the government is going to use it for inefficient stuff like paying down interest on the debt or welfare programs. That is, that is Warren Buffett work. said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was like, like, why he doesn't want to pay taxes is he's like, I feel like my money could actually be used for better things than paying down the national debt. And, you know, I, I'm deciding what those better things are for, right? I'm deciding uh, tax breaks, right? That's what I think <laughs> the money can be spent. <laughs> right. So we don't get that choice? No. No, man, this ain't a democracy.
Hello, friends and enemies. <laughs> now it's episode 80 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, y'all y'all already heard from him a little bit, but but we are very happy, very pleased to be joined. Our first ever returning guest, Wendy Liu, is back on the show. Uh, author of Abolish Silicon Valley. Y'all know who Wendy is. And we are also very happy to be joined by Jason Prado as well, who is... Uh, working at the the drivers cooperative we'll get more into that what the drivers co-op is and and jason's work on that in the actual show the the occasion for this is both wendy and jason are longtime tech workers um longtime tech workers who uh became radicalized right became you know good lefties um became very discontented with their work in tech and uh we want to start highlighting more of these kinds of like stories and journeys and just really interesting discussions with people like Wendy and Jason, um, who actually work in tech, have worked in tech for a long time, um, but have, you know, found their own ways to do, you know, more kind of radical work, leftist work, you know, work that actually aligns with the, the politics, the discontent they felt during that time. Um, you know, we kind of like, like started this series, you know, and we, we like soft launched this series without realizing it was going to be an occasional series with our episode with Liara Rue, um, who told her, her story about kind of moving from tech work into sex work. So just for, for listeners, this is something that we're going to be, you know, over, over time, you know, this, this will be an occasional ongoing series where we start, we start doing our own profiles, right? We talked last week about that New Yorker profile of Chamath Palahapatia. Nah, man, we need profiles of people like Wendy and Jason and Liara, uh, you know, people like Meredith Whitaker, uh, shout out to Meredith, you know, good friend, um, you know, people like that. So thank you for coming on, Wendy and Jason. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back and uh, for doing the series. I feel like there aren't enough, um, I guess, like public stories of people who are able to talk about why they got radicalized and you know why why what they're trying to do now. So I think um, yeah, I'm really happy to be talking about this. And I don't really care about being hired by the industry again. I feel like I think Jason probably doesn't either. So I think we're both happy to um, you know explain exactly why we're so discontented by this industry. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. I'm excited to be here. And uh, sure, we'll spill the tea if you want any like hot gossip about <laughs> like the tech companies, the VCs, whatever we know, it's it's yours. Absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> also a major reason for doing this series. Right? We're trying to get that hot tea and we're trying to spill it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before we get rolling, I will also highlight as well, um, if you haven't already picked up Wendy's book, Abolish Silicon Valley, which in a, in a lot of ways is, you know, partly Wendy's memoir, but partly an analysis of Silicon Valley, you know, really deep political economic, techno-political analysis intermixed in a, a really nice way with Wendy's own story, uh, you definitely pick that up. And also, I want to shout out as well at the top of the show, um, Jason has a substack called Venture Commune um, that, you know, also really looks in a, in a, in a really nice radical way at these kind of questions of um, the, the kind of political economy, the technolo- 
technological, technopolitical side of the of the tech sector. So yeah, buy Wendy's book, subscribe to Jason's Substack. All of those links will be thrown in the episode description. But where should we start? Maybe 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 a little bit of a rundown of like how you guys got into tech as well, because part of the reason why we're doing this series is because because of uh, the lovely folks in the Discord, in the TMK Discord, which you can access with uh, by subscribing on Patreon. But it was it was really the Discord and like engaging with people there where I realized just how many people in tech, how many tech workers listen to TMK, right? Like I, I don't know if Ed and I really uh, expected that to be the case. When, when we, you know, we're starting TMK, when we were thinking about who are, you know, who might listen to it, right? I don't know if we really expected to have such a huge contingent of tech workers, you know, discontented tech workers, um, listening, but I think it really shows that there's a, there, there's a growing, kind of network of people out there who are feeling the same way, who are not feeling like working in tech um, is actually living up to the reasons why they got into tech in the first place. And, you know, it's it's one thing for Ed and I to kind of like, you know, come out, come on here every single week and give you that, you know, that political economic analysis, that 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 biting commentary about why uh, the industry, why certain technologies and stuff are are, are harmful or are, are not socially beneficial or bad, right? And what what alternatives to that could look like? But Ed and I can't really speak to that tech worker experience. You know, we're not tech workers, right? I'm an academic. Ed's a journalist. I, I think it it would be really great for for us, for our listeners, to start hearing more about like why did you guys, Wendy and Jason, like what what got you into tech? Um, maybe we can start there. Like why why did you start getting into this industry? Uh, yeah, I mean, I loved computers as long as I could remember. Um, my my dad didn't work in tech for most of my life, um, but he was a, a tinker. Like we would drive around to um, flea markets and thrift stores and pick up like old electronics equipment. He would take it apart and patch them up and sell them on eBay. And that was something like we'd done forever. And uh, so I always had a computer around, but it wasn't like a nice Mac that like worked and stuff. It was like whatever kind of crappy computer we could hop a lot of parts and like you actually had to... And like in the nineties, you had to understand how to use a computer to like really use it. You couldn't just like play games on it or, or, um, you know, everything like had to be assembled at home. Um, so I was just always around computers, got into like IRC, ended up having a lot easier time making friends on the internet than in real life as kind of an awkward nerdy kid. Uh, and, and taught myself to program just, uh, on the internet, essentially just like taking stuff apart and, and tinkering a lot. Um, so when it came time, uh, to figure out if I was going to go to college or what. Um, it was clear I wanted to study computer science, so I looked around for programs doing that and um, ended up moving out here to California to study computer science. And from there, it was just like on rails to end up in the tech industry. Wendy, how, how, did, you, how did you start getting into tech? Yeah, yeah, I can share mine too. Yeah, I mean, it's not that dissimilar, but it's not. It's a little bit different for me. For me, it was more software than hardware. I've always been a software person. Um and this is a story I kind of write about in my book too, but I mean, yeah, I also made more friends on IRC than I did in person for a while because I was also a really awkward, nerdy kid. And um, I think I, I first so I first started making websites when I was about 12. I had just, you know, gotten into, a friend of mine was making this random website and I was like, oh, I want to keep working on it with you. And then just fell into this weird rabbit hole of um, 
puzzle websites that were a really big thing in like 2004. I don't think anyone uses them anymore. But from there, you know, just kind of found a community, built a forum, learned how to modify websites and from there like kind of learned PHP um, and got into the open source world there too because the software I was using was open source software and I was trying to understand what that meant and trying to get a sense of what this community was like. And so that led me down this uh, this path, which, uh, you know, I guess set me up for life where I just got really into programming and open source software and the idea of the internet as this kind of nebulous but um, wonderful space where I could build a life for myself that was better than the life that I could build outside of the space. And from there, I, uh, I studied computer science in university. I did computer science and math at McGill University in Canada. And I just did a lot of part-time jobs where I was programming, sometimes open source, sometimes not open source. Um, but for me, it was always just like the love of programming, the the love of math and software and algorithms. It, there's something kind of comforting about it because um, especially when I was a teenager, I was just not very good at talking to people, but I could always talk to the computer. <laughs> the computer would never judge me, right? And so <laughs> I think it was my, it was very therapeutic in a way. And was, you know, it also served as a bit of a crutch. I don't think it's something I would recommend to people to spend all your time in front of a computer instead of talking to other people face to face. But it did, it did work for me in that it gave me the confidence to, you know, do something I loved. Uh, but then, of course, it has its downsides, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. <laughs> yeah. And it was a, a great field to be in because, you know, there, I graduated the year of the 2008 recession. Um, and I saw my friends kind of, suffering through that, trying to find uh, their their spot in the economy as, as things were going badly for most people. Um, but that just never happened to tech. So like I joined Microsoft out of college um, from there, started a startup a few years later, uh, worked at a bunch of the other big thing companies like Google and Facebook throughout my career. And um, it's uh, like, I guess uh, it, it's, it's, you know, just economically, it's been a lot more comfortable as I've seen like more and more of my friends have, have trouble, like, you know, not being able to ever buy a house or whatever um, in, in since the recession. Um, so uh, it was just kind of continuously reinforced that, that going to tech was like a good decision. Yeah, and I think that idea that like, you know, especially, uh, you know, graduating at in the 2008 recession, right, as that was popping off, right? Like, yeah, economically, that that was where all the money was, right? It's like, I think before that, if you know, you might, you know, people might have been shuttled into Wall Street, right? But there was a black mark on Wall Street. Um, and, and it seemed like both on a, on a labor standpoint, tech became an industry that, was like, okay, this is where I can actually, I can make that money. I can be economically secure, but also do something good in the world as well. And I mean, we see that, uh, you know, politically, uh, like financially as well, where like, you know, when the 2008 recession hit, there was suddenly so much money sloshing around that was not going into Wall Street and instead got funneled into Silicon Valley. I mean, we've talked about it on the show, but it's like no coincidence that uh, Uber and Airbnb were founded in the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession, right? That a lot of these big startups that we constantly have to talk about on TMK um, have their origins in that big like VC boom um, after Wall Street was was you know toxic there for a little while. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's really interesting about the the Wall Street connection is that there is a way in which um, an explanation of the financial crisis is taught or filtered down to you know undergraduates who are studying computer science and they're about to enter the workforce. 
uh, and this is definitely true for myself. I mean, I'll just say like, I learned about the financial crisis kind of ambiently, you know, just through popular culture. But then when I was um, in college, I did a math class where we actually talked about kind of the mathematical models that underpinned um, some of the products on Wall Street. And the message from that was very, very clear. It's very, very, much, very much that, you know, Wall Street just just messed it up. They did it wrong. And they they just like didn't have good mathematical underpinnings. And that was the problem. And it was very, you know, it was, you take this complicated political, economic, historical thing and you reduce it to a series of formulas. And the lesson I took away from that was like, oh, Wall Street is just, you know, they were just trying to make money, but also they just didn't have good fundamentals. And it didn't occur to me that there was any sort of continuity or any sort of spectrum between Wall Street and Silicon Valley, that Wall Street and Silicon Valley were symbiotic in some way, that they were entwined, mm. that the money you know, would eventually go to some of the same people. I just thought that, okay, well, Wall Street's not good. Wall Street's tainted in some way that I can't quite understand, but Silicon Valley is different. Um, and it's this is a place where I can just like build something clean, <laughs> something that won't harm people, right. something, something that's just useful. And so you know, it, it felt almost like a license, like just l thinking about Wall Street as, as the bad actor here, as this completely um, separate thing from Silicon Valley allowed me to convince myself that it would be fine. Like no matter what I did in the tech industry, it's, a, it's just way better. And I feel like that was pretty common among people I knew. I mean, there were people who would defend Wall Street, but I think it definitely felt like there was an anti-Wall Street bias among um, fellow computer science students and that we thought of Silicon Valley or whatever the tech industry represented, we thought of that as cleaner, better, different, and this like a, a new kind of money, like a completely different locus of power than, than Wall Street. Mm. Definitely. People going to Wall Street were just greedy or just want to do well for themselves. Whereas us going into Silicon Valley, uh, we were going to change the world. We're going to disrupt things. We were building things for users whose lives we would improve. And that was, that was a story I definitely believed uh, for the first several years I was in tech. Did y'all ever come across critical narratives before you had been radicalized? And, or, and if you did, did you kind of dismiss them outright? Uh, because it also, it sounds like, like the, I, like you're talking about the ideas were pretty like hegemonic and there was no room to like really question them in that space. Yeah. I just, just, uh, um, completely disavowed any criticism thinking these people are haters. They're jealous. They're, uh, technophobes. They're Luddites. I, was, I had a different understanding of the definition of the word <laughs> Luddite back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, they just weren't ready for the new world that was going to come. Yeah. I mean, Jason, Jason actually at least had friends who were like leftists and who were kind of, you know, saying these things, but maybe just you weren't ready to hear. I did not feel like, um, I had any friends who were at least willing to talk to me about the tech industry in a critical way. And I wasn't really ready to hear that either. I think the, the only criticism that I was mildly interested in was the kind of feminist critiques of tech. The, you know, the mm -hmm. ones that were about how women are not being promoted or they're being bullied out of certain spaces or they're being sexually assaulted. Um, and those were, they were worrisome to me because I could see that, okay, this might mean that the industry is going to be one where I'll have difficulty. But at the same time, I think I, I, I really wanted so hard to believe in this idea of the industry as something that would save me, as something where I could be the best person I could possibly be. And I really had to cling on to the idea that none of these, none of these things would happen to me. None of the bad things I read about in blog posts or on Twitter or whatever, none of it would happen to me. I would be fine and that I would figure out how to navigate the industry without experiencing sexism or racism or anything. Um, and so I really just kind of convinced myself that that was possible, even though I did have some experiences, which led me to believe like, okay, you know, I'm always going to be 
seen as different by some people and maybe like held back in that regard. But I still thought that, you know, I could find a way to not make it apply to me. Um, and, you know, I would say that was because I just really wanted to believe in this narrative of the industry as a place of meritocracy, as a place where the best rise to the top. And I, you know, I, I wanted to be one of the best who doesn't. And so I think, um, the narrative mm. was a really appealing one for me. And so it made any criticism that I was willing to stomach about the industry. It was still very much, um, it was very muted, you know, in, in my head, I was like, okay, well, sure, there are some bad actors, but overall, the place is great. And overall, you know, the industry is one that values excellence and values delivering great things. And, you know, over time, the bad things will will get better. And so I just, I never really considered the larger picture of how the tech industry is just one part of this larger economy, and that the economy as a whole has its own problems. That That was not really a thing that crossed my mind is, is more like, okay, well, you know, tech has some people who are just really sexist or really racist or just, you know, really short-sighted, but that's fine. It'll get better. I I think I was very convinced that it would just get better. Yeah. I I mean, I really also feel like both of you are ahead of the curve in this too, because it's like only recently that these narratives are starting to to get dispelled a little bit, that people are starting to kind of wake up from that, you know, wake up from the haze of the meritocracy and the the promises and the techno utopian dreams, and, and now they're they're a little hungover. They're like, oh, that that party wasn't really what I thought it was, right? Now that I have, uh, you know, I'm sober, I'm looking back on it. Uh, but that I feel like that's only really recently, like you know, talking about the the connections between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. I just remember. I was in, you know, I, I, I was in grad school. I finished my PhD in 2016. Um, and I remember like, you know, when I was in grad school and writing about the, the political economy of smart cities in particular, but Silicon Valley at large, like having to actually, uh, like really make forceful arguments that, uh, Silicon Valley and Wall Street are not these two separate things, that they are actually symbiotic with each other, that they are deeply connected um, culturally, as we're talking about, right? Like a lot, a lot of the things around meritocracy, um, it, you know, that the, the cream will rise to the top, that as long as you just hustle hard, work hard, bring in, bring in clients, bring in money, bring in whatever, then, then you will rise to the top. But also, you know, political, politically and economically, like, it, you know, in like 2015, 2016, I was still having to convince people that these two things were, were, were interrelated and not somehow like diametrically opposed to each other. Yeah, I think the venture capital system really uh, obscures that. So um, I did my undergrad at Stanford where like venture capitalists would come and just teach classes, right? Like Peter Thiel has taught a class mm-hmm. there. Like lots and lots of VCs will uh, show up for like the entrepreneurial thought leadership course or just teach a whole course themselves. Um who do they work for? Like that? Well, we never asked about that. Like, what's an LP? Like, those are the people who just give the money. Um, I and that you're completely cut off from them. Uh, the interface to to Wall Street is these celebrity venture capitalists who are just like geniuses. They lift a pinky and like armies move, and it's because that they uh, they are like the most capable and have the best ideas, and they see the future most clearly. Uh, so you know, obviously, the money that is pouring into venture capital is from at best pension funds. And at worst, like Saudi oil barons. Um, <clears throat> but like that, that is just, that's Wall Street, right? That's just the finance industry. But you don't think about it. You think about like how cool this, this venture capitalist is and how much you want to pitch them. Yeah, I think, you know, it's also interesting to think about that 
function that emerges out of Stanford, especially where it's like an incubator for this sort of thought, right? Whereas you can have like VCs and business leaders there, but I can't imagine uh, like union leaders, for example, being allowed to like teach classes at universities regularly. I totally. mean, the, the outrage that you would hear. No. I mean, even if the university allowed it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, actually, they're, yeah. all, they're all down with the hippies at UC Berkeley. They're not up there with the, with, you know, with the, the, the uh, leaders of the masters of the universe at Stanford. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you've heard this yet, but union leaders actually hold back innovation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... A lot of people don't know this, but journalists are paid by big um, labor, right? I think a lot of people were doing some investigative work that made my heart palpitate during Prop 22 when they were finding out that I talk to union people as sources, which means, of course, that they pay me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, all, it's like, it's like, it's interesting also because a lot of these VCs, I'm sure they also manage funds that are one way or another have some assets under management related to the universities, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, unions definitely also wouldn't be allowed to speak because it's like most, a lot of universities, a lot of colleges have uh, students trying to organize, right? And trying to unionize. And that's probably another conflict, but it's like a conflict of interest for labor, but it's like a virtue in of itself for capital. I'm going to put a a place marker here for, we got to do a whole episode or or two or three looking at the Stanford CS department. (laughs) We got to do a deep dive there. I mean, Stanford uh, too. (laughs) I mean, Stanford in general, but but definitely the the computer science department at Stanford, which is like, you know, Jason's talking about how these like venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, people like Peter Till, which Jeremy said, you know, Stanford needs some vampire hunters on staff. If there's a young Van Helsing out there. Stanford's where you want to do your undergrad. Get get your start in the in your career. Uh, but the CS department in general, from what I from what I've seen, you know, there there is like almost no uh, distinction between, you know, them teaching computer science and them, you know, advising and consulting for, you know, massive fees to these companies, you know, starting their own startups and creating these armies of, of other, you know, entrepreneurs and people that go out there. Um, but I'm going to throw it over to Jason who has, you know, firsthand experience with this. <laughs> Yeah, maybe one of the most shocking things um, a few years on from from graduating was that uh, hearing that, like, basically Palantir had taken over um, the recruiting pipeline from Stanford, and like, it just the Stanford CS program just became a feeder program for for Palantir, which uh, you know makes information visualization tools for the military and police. Uh, it's Peter Thiel's baby uh, to the point where like even. Like other companies would say, like, oh, we're not going to bother recruiting from Stanford because like Palantir just owns everyone who graduates from there. That sounds like uh, military recruiters at every small boat town. It's like, what's the use of going to school when you're better used as cannon fodder? You got to work for the government, get that, uh, get that soldier pay. Because you're mm-hmm. not going to Stanford. Yep. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of like tie this back to the Wall Street thing, um, it it does sound very. It's, it does seem very similar to what was going on in Wall Street during the peak of it. And it's probably still going on today where, you know, these companies, so Wall Street firms, but also like management consulting firms, kind of everything around like financial services, they would just have um, permanent presences on college campuses. And so there'd be a pipeline from like Princeton to 
whatever institution or like Harvard and Yale to whatever institution. And the students there would just be like, I mean, unless they're, they're predisposed to be cynical of authority and cynical of like this kind of crass commercialism, they're probably inclined to think, oh, you know, it must be okay if I'm here at university at this very prestigious university and there are recruiters from like McKinsey or Lehman Brothers or whatever who are, and Goldman Sachs who are telling me that I'm brilliant and that I could make a huge difference by joining them. It has to be okay. They can't possibly be doing anything wrong because if they were, then why would the university have them on campus? And I feel like, yeah, to, you know, to a degree, these, whatever companies are able to recruit at these college campuses, they're given an air of legitimacy by the fact that the university is letting them be there. And, you know, and what that means is that it's much harder for students to have an overtly critical lens through which to see these companies. And so instead of seeing them as kind of their, in a way, their enemy, which is what they should see, you know, these companies are trying to suck their, their life force out from under them and turn it into labor power and then turn that into shareholder profits. They instead see these companies as kind of friends. It's like, oh, this, this company, they're going to give me a, a pension. They're going to give me a 401k. They're going to give me like vacation and stock. Oh my God, how kind of them. And then, you know, and then what you have are you have, um, you have workers who are much more likely to be willing to go along with whatever management tells them to do, right? At least like, you know, theoretically, I'm sure there are many who have been able to resist despite kind of this, um, this weird pipeline, but I think it is exactly what the companies want. Like these companies want a steady, a steady stream of, you know, new grads who are going to be docile workers who will just do exactly what they're told and, you know, produce a lot of value from the com- for the company and never, never rebel or resist in any sort of way. Yeah. You know, it's like, I say it all the time on the show, I feel like, but it like, it really is like, you know, I think all the time back to like my own schooling and how like, you know, you have a chunk of people who went into med school and then everyone else that I know and had gone to high school with in this pipeline program to STEM programs is Silicon Valley, Wall Street, or Pentagon, you know, as a contractor, right? Every single, almost every single person um, in the science program that I can think of. And it's like that every single year, you know, because they recruit. And because, you know, I think Anand Gerdahadis wrote about an aspect of this in his Winner Takes All book, you know, when people graduate from college, too, they prey upon, like, the isolation and the fact that we don't really have any real social infrastructure to take care of people after they leave. A very weird point of time in their lives where it's like you probably have some of the, the best, you know, living conditions if, you, if you're able to have access to food in terms of, like, walkability, in terms of socia- socializing with people, in terms of, like, access to, like, these classes or stimulating subjects. And if you don't have to work, then, like, at least, like, a good amount of leisure that you're not, that is harder to replicate or get or can be replicated later on, but with concessions. And you get all of that with these jobs uh, who do co-work classes, who do ridiculous amounts of pay, who do, like, really expansive leisure and, and retreat activities, all in a bid to, like, recruit people to, like, come in and also not really think about the work and maybe they do and maybe they don't consciously model it so that they don't think about the work but i think like a an immediate consequence of that ends up being that people don't think about the work like i know people who, are, who, want, who go on to the, some of these companies and when i talk with them it's like you know the, the aftermath the consequences of the work they're not really thinking they're not con- too concerned about right what they are concerned about is like the way their the benefits are vested or the way the stock is in, is uh, vested you know, whether or not they'll be able to get a job at another firm, you know, whether or not they get access to their benefits and, and, and this or that, it seems to be. And I feel a part of that feels organic and then part of that feels like very consciously crafted. 
Well, the companies do also tell a story that if you want to change the world and have a positive impact, this is the way to do it. And in consulting, the story there is um, I'll come be a management consultant to learn how the system works for a few years. And then uh, Pete Buttigieg style, you know, go into service of some kind and, uh, you know, get elected or, or you know, then you understand how, how things work. So you can go like use your connections to and work in the nonprofit industrial complex or, you know, to see positive impact. And, and in tech, it's not that different. Um, you know, Google's mission was formed to connect all the world's information, make it useful. Um, Facebook's was to um, connect the world. Uh, these companies have these missions, and they, and they lead with those, right? Um, I mean, I, this is only a little bit of an exaggeration, but I often like to say, like, while working at Facebook, like, people were really convinced, and, and I was too, that we were doing, like, charity work and just happened to get paid really well for it because the, the emphasis on the mission was was so intense. Um, and I, I mean, I do believe in the, the mission of using technology to connect people, and that is, that is like, a beautiful endeavor. Um, I, I have come to disagree with the way Facebook did it and, um, you know, why it should be privately held and used for advertising and data mining and whatnot. Um, but like the, the mission is very reinforced there. Like when we have these weekly uh, chats with the CEO, like every company will end that with like a, uh, just a propaganda video, right? Like here's a story about our users who used our product to connect with each other or start a small business in a developing country or um, find a long lost relative. Like, you know, this is what we're really doing here. And it just so happens you get paid several hundred thousand dollars a year um, to to participate in this. Aren't you lucky? Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of Pete Buttigieg real quick, anytime I meet a McKinsey consultant, I say thank you for your service. You know? Exactly. Because they're doing, they're, 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 you know, they're, they got the real mission oriented jobs in society right now. <laughs> yeah, like helping the Sacklers, uh, advising them on what to do. Yeah, that's right. And, and <laughs> or fleecing help, all helping, of helping the, uh, ICE save money. <laughs> helping right. ICE save money, fleecing all of the uh, East African countries out of their, you know, out of their public funding or public dollars. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Thank you for your service. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just to like follow up on, on Jason's point, I think it's, it's hard to overestimate just how much conscious work these companies put into, you know, Ed, like you're saying, like kind of crafting a culture where people feel like they're doing something good and they don't have to think about the work because someone else is thinking about it, right? Like you're hired as an engineer or designer or manager, whatever, you know, you're hired to work on this company that is already really big and really established and has all these accolades. And surely there are all these smart people who are thinking about how to turn your work into something that's socially good, right? Surely. Because these companies, they are really good at producing PR videos. They're really good at making like tearjerker ads. Like I remember at my Google orientation as an intern, the very first week was all just like, you know, indoctrination. They would show us videos about how Google's connecting people and how we're just doing such amazing work. And, you know, the recruiters would look around the room to like kind of like see if we're like, feeling emotional enough. (laughs) And it's just, it it felt very much like they definitely wanted us to buy into the mission. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing for an organization, you know, yeah, you do want your employees to be bought into the mission. It is a pretty scary thing when you have a company the size of Google or, you know, Facebook or Microsoft or Amazon, where there's no real way to hold it accountable, right? Because like, okay, let's say all the workers are on board and shareholders don't really care about ethics as long as they're making their money. Well, who is going to hold them to account? What governments? Like, who, you know, and like, that's kind of the only hope. And and so I think these companies are doing their best to create an environment where they're eliminating any possible sources of conflict. And it is very scary when there is no moral backbone and there's no way of holding them to account outside of, I don't know, hoping that 
like Nancy Pelosi and Diane Fein, Fein, Diane Feinstein decide to stand up these companies, which like you know why why would they? So yeah, it's just mm-hmm. they're creating you know, they're taking advantage on the one hand of the fact that we have a very um, kind of oligarchic political system where it's like totally normal for a, you know just a very small number of billionaires to be kind of running everything, and on the other hand, they're taking advantage of the fact that you have these um, impressionable, often young people who. Uh, really enjoy the kind of work that they do and want to work on something socially beneficial and just, you know, they want to believe that they can do that, that they can just do what they lo- would love to do and get paid a lot of money and have that be socially useful. They really want to believe that. And so then these companies just like pay people who are kind of like, I don't know, internal PR who are like cheerleaders to make the employees feel like they're doing something useful and that they shouldn't question anything the company's doing. And I don't know, maybe Jason, you can talk more about that at like Facebook because it seems like they're probably really, really good at that. Yeah, you say internal PR, and that's that's exactly how we should think of it. Um, there are, there will be like several dozen, maybe over a hundred people working on a internally focused communications department. Um, wow. So that's not like uh, making the brand look good for everyone else. It's making the brand feel good for the hundred thousand people who are working on it day to day. So like you know. You're, uh, whenever there's like a controversial release coming or uh, gosh, like even like going home for the holidays, there'd be like a post like, here's the things your family might ask you about uh, that are controversial. And here's some ways that you could answer. It's like, wow, that I mean, that was a really good use of this PR person's time to motivate like thousands of workers to like, you know, reject some questioning from outside. Um, so like how what hope do we have, uh, especially as just as like individuals to, to stand up to that, like that much structure and that much force? I mean, what does it say of us as a society that only a handful of people looked at that and went, no, that's terrible. That's awful. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, and you know, part of it is like, and like we've been talking about here, they're really successful at building the culture, you know, and ingratiating people in this. I think that's also underestimated. I mean, and that's also continuity with like Silicon Valley and with really like any industry that deals with capital. Like, so, you know. Brazen, so, you know, just like so, without much of an interface or, you know, any sort of barrier between it, right? With as much, I feel like money and power sloshing around in like these industries, it's, it's much more of a concern about like, how do we get people to agree because, or be agreeable because it matters. It really does matter. And they do need them to do it, right? For it to function and for it to like, and for the company to continue, grow, for any of these companies to continue to grow, right? To attract interest, to attract capital, to attract, you know, new talent, right? Yeah, and something that I think is really key to understanding how the tech industry works, um, and it's really useful for understanding any industry, is figuring out um, which of the functions performed by the industry are necessary, are, are things that would be done by kind of any powerful industry, like, it, you know, things that money would always do to protect itself, versus what is actually special about the technology or about the product being sold. And I think in the case of Silicon Valley, so much of what we see is just money doing what it always does to protect itself and to um, maintain an air of legitimacy. Uh, And at the same time, there is something else. There is a seed of something different. And I think that comes, and you see that, for example, in the open source movement, you see that in, you know, the fact that there are all these people who really believe that technology has the power to give us a better world, but are often unable to do that because of capital. And and I think it's worth figuring out how to separate those because mm-hmm. a lot of the time when people criticize the tech industry, you know, it's easy to write that off as just like, oh, they just hate they hate tech, they hate progress, whatever. But I mean, not everything about the industry is bad. It's just a matter of figuring out, okay, like what what is the what is the bad part? Well the bad part is 
when you have this um, ossified entrenched power structure trying to protect itself at all co- at all costs, even if it means destroying the planet. That's the bad part. The good part is like, well, you know, it would be cool to build things that people like and that make their lives better. That would be nice. But how, how do we do that without feeding into the first? And I think that's kind of the problem of our age, where there's a lot of pent up desire in the industry, which, you know, I'm sure people in your discord are, are a part of, right? Like there are a lot of disaffected tech workers who love the, the promise of technology, but it's just so hard to find a way to use that without being sucked into this vampire-like system that will just, yeah, take all of your, you know, quite wholesome desire to build something cool, turn that into, I don't know, a new yacht for Jeff Bezos or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the computer is a amazing tool for creativity and for for production, um, and and people want to use technology to change the world because it's a very like natural human impulse. I think the reason that these companies have to focus so much on the mission is because you can you know you can pay someone to to do hard work, you can pay someone to do some analysis, but like you can't just pay someone to bring their creativity and like everything that they have in themselves to like solve really interesting hard problems. Some people will be motivated by the money, but I, I believe most people won't. Um, so you really need that mission. Uh, and I, I could definitely tell in myself, like over the, the eight years I was at Facebook and like 12-ish years I was in big tech, um, when I stopped believing in the mission is when I stopped, you know, doing the creative work, when I stopped like really showing up and, and having that fire and just kind of instead was doing like whatever was required of me and just being like, um, you know, this is a job. Uh, but so long as I, I had believed in that mission, it, it didn't feel like it was just a job. It felt like it was something that was like, um, you know, a, a more of a calling to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is really interesting. I do want to start transitioning as well towards that, like, you know, yeah, how did you, ex- how, did, how did you both escape that kind of gravitational pull and become disaffected and, and what came next? But, but I also do want to highlight as well, um, on, on one hand, like I'm seeing a lot, it's like a lot of similarities here, um, with my, with my profession of academia as well, which, you know, really I think does a lot to enculturate people when they're, you know, in grad school, um, and kind of professionalizing as academics into the university system around that kind of like, you know, uh, academia like tech, um, work has been kind of framed as a vocation, right? It's something, it's something you would do for free. And isn't it just so great that somebody happens to be paying you for it? And because you love it, you can give everything, um, over to it, right? Um, your entire life, your, all, all the hours of your day, you know, your entire, like everything is given towards this organization. And that part that comes through, a lot of, uh, you know, needing to have this like internal PR, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's become a meme on TMK now, but they really do be manufacturing consent, right? <laughs> and it's like, you know, they are in part trying to manufacture consent, um, within the, within the industry to be, to, to keep constantly reaffirming and reminding you that you are changing the world. This is great. You might be working 80 hours a week. You might be living on campus, but hey, we're, 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 we're giving you free food. We got dry cleaners on, you know, on, on location. Like we got everything you need. Um, and this is, we are just trying to, uh, give you the support and resources you need to activate your vocation, to give us everything because you love it. At the same time, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the working conditions and labor processes of, um, of people in like the, you know, of, 
Uber drivers, of Amazon warehouse workers, of this more kind of, you know, people who are, are, are integral to the operations of tech and to the tech companies, but are, you know, lower on the totem pole. Um, but we haven't talked a lot about um, similar kinds of uh, like hyper competitive, ultra exploitative labor conditions of of engineers um, and people in the tech industry as well who are kind of you know at the top, right? They're they're getting high salaries, but at what cost? The Financial Times has been you know last week it ran a couple of article a couple of really long investigative articles about. Um, labor conditions in um, big Chinese tech companies, and you know th this is this is pretty part and parcel of of Western media that you know they don't they're not able to look at the water that they're swimming in. Instead, they have to orientalize it and look over at China and be like, "Holy shit! Look at how tech workers at you know Alibaba or Baidu are being treated. Um, isn't this so fucking awful?" Um, and, and yes, it is fucking awful, but at the same time, they, these, these, uh, Chinese tech companies are self-consciously mimicking and trying to intensify, um, all of the worst features of, of the work culture that Silicon Valley, uh, originated and innovated, right? Things like, um, you know, forced ranking. There was a great quote from a, a social anthropologist, um, uh, uh, Jing Biao, uh, who studies kind of tech work and stuff and, uh, anthropologically. And he said, quote, the growth of China's tech giants has not come from true innovation, but from labor intensity. It's very difficult to automate certain parts of the software sector. Forced ranking is not about efficiency or fair reward, but about control. The single method destroys all solidarity between peers. It generates obedience and fear towards the person above. So, so, you know, we talked about the kind of internal PR that's, you know, this kind of soft approach that's kind of making making you love it. But at the same time, um, can you talk a little bit about the, the working conditions of tech um, and how that led you towards the being disaffected and, and kind of, you know, building up the momentum to escape that orbit? Um, gosh, I, I feel like I have a little bit of a privileged experience because like, you know, despite all their flaws, like California tech companies are um, like comfortable in a lot of ways, like they keep you there a lot, but they do your laundry, they feed feed you as you're saying, they, they pay well. Um, so through my through my 20s, it didn't feel so, so bad, I guess. Um, the place that I would I would look over and see like that seems like they're doing something pretty different and it seems pretty pretty rough is definitely the games industry. I mean, in a way that mm. high tech just um, hasn't. I mean, you know, people might work fifty or sixty hours a week at times there. Like I've gone in on the weekend in my career a, a handful of times, but um, seeing people I knew who went into games um, kind of make that like pretty standard was was definitely something I noticed. And I guess what I always figured is um, like that's coming for us later. <laughs> um, you know. Like uh, if you're um, at, a, at a top tech company, um, you're recruited from around the world. Um, you know, they, as you were saying earlier, like this, they kind of displace people and everyone ends up in the same, same ge like geographic location in the Bay Area, basically, um, with no ties here. They're, they're quite likely from another country, so they don't have like things to do outside of work. So, you know, the, the workplace becomes their entire social life. Um, so I definitely saw like that coming on the edges. Um, uh, but yeah, again, like games and like maybe like other like media related uh, industries, like uh, really are pioneering that in the US. And um, I'm curious to see when it comes to like to, to Silicon Valley directly. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, uh, I would also add that there are 
parts of, you know, even big tech companies, even the the ones with famously great work cultures where they're already doing this, right? And like with, with some types of contract workers, they're already experimenting with just like different, um, different treatment, you know, not, not as a privilege. They're just not paying them as much. And maybe they have to work harder in some ways, even though they might be doing work that would previously have been thought of as, um, you know, high valued work. And, and so and another point to make there is that uh, the demographics of the person do matter a lot because someone who has a computer science degree from Stanford is going to be treated differently than someone who went to a coding boot camp or, and, you know, there's a strong gender bias in the industry. There's a strong racial bias, strong pay gaps along many different bands. And, you know, those are things where the, yeah, the experience of someone who maybe is like a machine learning engineer who has really great names on their resume, they're going to be fine no matter what in some ways. Mm-hmm. But someone who doesn't really have the same background, they're, they're going to see the rough edges of the industry first. They're more likely to go towards companies that have no interest in giving them time and space to do something creative that are already treating them like um, assembly workers and are not paying them very well either. So it's, yeah, I feel like the industry right now, there's a lot it's probably getting more polarized in some ways as um, and yeah, maybe Jason can speak to this too, but just like as the high end jobs are, they're still going to pay a lot and they will for a while probably, but companies are going to try to find ways to cut costs. And many of them are looking to China as a model, right? Uh, there have been prominent VCs who've come out and said like, Oh, it's great that these Chinese workers are working so hard. Why can't American workers work this hard? You know, mm-hmm. like we got to compete against China guys. We got to, we got to also pull like 80 hour weeks mm. and you know, it's, this is something that is coming. Um, there are companies that are thinking about how to outsource, how to, you know, downskill jobs and just like find ways to save, um, at least in certain roles, whereas they're, you know, like basically splitting up the roles that require creativity or what they think of as creativity. And so they can just like pay a small number of people really high salaries, but then most of the workers can just do jobs that are, you know, easily replaceable on where they can just intensify control and surveillance. And that kind of, to me, feels like what the future is going to hold for the industry. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting also to think through how, like you said, you know, Jason and Wendy, there is a lot of work that needs creativity. And so there's a lot of work invested in ensuring your your heart and souls into it. And then there's, I feel there's also a lot of equally essential work that may not require the creativity, but requires a human to do it, like with content moderation, but all that gets invisibilized and is not valued the same way, even though it is like without this work that can't really be automated, you know, and without this work that needs a human actually to think through the problem. Even if it is like a, like tasks that are being broken up or, rep- or, or repetitive or in one way or another, not, you know, the creative uh, tasks as the companies might term them, you know, without them, like a lot of these companies would fall apart or at least their core products would fall apart. But to see how workforces get, immer- get you know, segregated in a sense around like these uh, narratives or these ideas about what work matters and what work doesn't matter. Um, and also at the same time, I feel like COVID, or it seems like COVID has intensified some of these, uh, some of these boundaries or some of these, uh, gulfs between workers or made new ones. You know, like there's been a lot of reporting over the past year about how, uh, even something as simple as like remote work has like 
you know, drawn deeper lines of contrast between co uh, contract workers and full-time workers, especially in a place like Google, right, where you have more contract workers than full-time employees, even though they do identical work, um, and a division in who gets to relax at home and retain the same benefits and privileges and pay as they would have if they're in the office. And I think then also coupled with like there have been you know, like you're saying, uh, it's going to come for us next. Like over the years, there have been like trickling of like, oh, Silicon Valley was engaged in um, agreements, non-compete agreements with each other at the firm level so that they would agree not to poach talent from certain places or to poach talent from certain places or to uh, suppress wages in this way or another or to not offer certain term uh, benefits, right? So that they would not have to compete with another on those grounds. I wonder... Like what is going to be, if it's going to be like a death by a thousand cuts thing, where it's like over time, these companies are going to, as the work shifts, as the demographics shift, suppress and, and, and lower wage conditions, or there'll be a decisive break in the political economy or in the regulatory system or in the legal framework that will allow them to go like, okay, like now, you know, fuck all the, fuck the pretense, or maybe like, you know, we don't need to care about this angle anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. That it, I mean, it'll probably be a combination of both, right? There'll be some places that do a sharp break and there'll be some places that just kind of do death by a thousand cuts, which I mean, uh, I've been reading a lot about the, the seventies and the eighties and kind of like what happened to labor in America during, during the, you know, that famously dark time. And it really does sound like, um, there might be echoes in history that we can turn to of just how did it happen then? Well, there would be like one factory that moved at a time and the union would get a little bit weaker every, every time. And, uh, but then eventually it was just gone. And yeah, and that's something that it definitely feels like there are parallels now where if you look around and see, you know, which companies are, have just laid off a ton of people and which companies are offering more contract roles for things that used to be full time. And, um, you know, which companies are just like not even, uh, not even hiring in, I don't know, in, in places like Silicon Valley at all, because they're like, oh, it's too overpaid. Um, and then, and then also thinking about, you know, not just the conditions of work, but also what products are able to be made at all. Um, it really does feel like you look around, especially in SF, you look at the billboards and you're like, oh, they're all just like gig apps or SaaS, like some, I don't know, random SaaS products that just seem like they're built on a house of, I don't know, like a, a sandcastles in the air. Does, does that kind of make sense? It's just like where this whole city mm. is just like built on selling products to other startups or, you know, gig apps. And like that, that's basically it. And it, you, you really get the sense that you, there's this foreclosure of all these possibilities. Like there are all these things the tech industry could have done. Instead, it's just people getting funneled into these jobs that are not really producing anything useful. Um, and they're, pay their, their like wages and their work conditions are getting worse over time, but there's just like not much that can be done about it. Um, and I mean, you just kind of go back to an earlier point. Um, something you were saying, Ed, was making me think about the fact that um, the central lie of capitalism is this idea that we are worth what we are paid. And so if you are not getting paid very much, oh, you just don't bring too much value. You know, you're just, you're not really worthy as a person. Mm -hmm. It's like, you just, you're just worthless. Sorry. And, you know, I think that's, it's so obviously a lie, but like, because what what um, you get paid actually reflects is how much you are valued by a company that is that you should see as an adversary, and what this company, what a company is going to value, depends on so many things, including what they can get away with, um, who they can get away with underpaying, you know, how much power the workers have together, and also things like uh, where are they getting their money from, what products are hot right now, what. What are VCs willing to fund? And so you have all these factors that tie into um, the condition of work in this industry that just often get, 
uh, brushed under the rug, right? Because like it, all, all this talk of salaries, it's like, oh, how much uh, is this company willing to pay you? It's like, oh, you're, you're getting paid like $200,000 or $500,000. Wow. You must be a rock star. You must be really, really great at something. It must be really valuable as a human being. It's like, no, we, we got to stop pretending like there's any connection between what a company is willing to pay you and your inherent worth as a human being, or even like what you're able to contribute because those things are not really related, especially now at a time when, you know, we're, we have this crisis of overproduction. We're producing all these things that are not actually useful. We are spending so much money on like mili- militaristic purposes. And it's just like, I, yeah, it's, it's hard to understand how people can still buy into this idea that what you're paid is somehow related to your inherent worth. Yeah, shout out to a friend of the show, Palmer Lucky, who and Daryl just raised four hundred and fifty million dollars in you know a round of funding. Uh, <laughs> you know, speaking of yeah, I mean, so I think this is a really good point that you're that you're making here as well around you know all this SaaS, right? All this software as a service, this these kind of sandcastles in the sky. I think is a really nice way to to put it because it's like. It, you know, th- this is supposedly the engine of economic growth right now, right? Where, but the output is nothing but like vibes and vaporware, right? Like that's like the output of the economy. But I think we should, we have to be able to, to, to make that point while also understanding that the inputs into that engine, into creating these vibes and vaporware are still deeply material, right? It, it's it's a lot of capital. It's a lot of material input, resources. It's a lot of labor power, you know, people being funneled into in a, in a, an intensifying uh, exploitative and extractive machine, but to, as you said, create sandcastles in the sky, right? Or, you know, surveillance towers and, uh, uh, you know, drones and, you know, the kinds of shit that like Enduro is producing, right? That's the only material um, outputs <laughs> right now in, in, in the economy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, to maybe tie this back to what you, uh, what you kind of wanted us to talk about later, which is like how we got radicalized. I mean, for mm. me, part of what radicalized me was realizing like, this is it. Like you only get one life, right? And I don't want to spend my life contributing to this machine, to this, this machine that kills people, you know, just to like tie back to the the title (laughs) of this, of this podcast. Yeah. It's just Mm -hmm. realizing, okay, like what are the actual outputs of the work that I'm contributing to the work that I formerly felt so proud to be doing? It's like, well, it's just intensifying resource extraction and intensifying domination of labor, uh, just funneling money upward to a few billionaires. And I think after a certain point, I just, I was like, I just, this doesn't seem great. Like there has to be an alternative. You know, I don't know if there is, but I will spend time trying to, trying to find one, trying to see what people are saying about it because this is just too, too depressing to think about. You know, I think around like 2015, 2016, maybe I started to pay attention to stories about Amazon warehouse workers who were, you know, obviously not having a great time. Uber drivers who found that their wages were going down and that they just had no recourse. And it started to kind of hit me that this industry, which was claiming to be making the world a better place, it was like, oh, it was actually just not really. And once I was able to get over 
the threat that posed to my self-narrative, I started to think more about like, okay, how might that be? Is there a historical precedent for this? Um, what are the what are the alternatives to a system like the one we have now? And that really opened me up to the possibility that, you know, we don't have to be stuck in this, like, just capitalist hellscape. We can imagine and fight for something better. Yeah, I, tr- I want to throw it over to Jason for the same the same point around, like, what, you know, was there a kind of breaking point? What what kind of made you receptive to those critiques of the tech sector from a leftist point of view? What made you uh, reconsider what Luddite means? Hmm? <laughs> um, but also at the same time, uh, you know, I want you to speak to that, but I also want both of you as well to start thinking about or start discussing a bit more about, like, what are these alternatives, right? Maybe speak a little bit about the the work that both of you are doing, where it is possible to do te- to to be disaffected with the with Silicon Valley, with the tech industry, without having to disavow doing tech work, right? Without being like, all right, I guess my only choice is to uh, uh, completely rechain, retrain, change my entire career, go be an aesthetic somewhere on a mountaintop or something, you know. Um, but but there are alternative possibilities out there so yeah please whatever you do don't stop being a technologist we need radical technologists now more than ever we're going to need more in the future both embedded in the industry and attacking it from outside using technology um so yeah don't don't start a goat farm or whatever um the turning point back (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, don't just become a dj um don't just go to burning man every year um you know use your skills for good uh, <laughs> the um, I mean, for like like for a lot of people, I think the 2016 elections was a, a big turning point for me. Um, I had you know mostly bought into the 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 rhetoric at Facebook that you know connecting the world is messy. Um, it's it's not a dinner party, but like we're going to do it. Um, so there would be misinformation. There would be you know sometimes Facebook being used for revolutionarians uh, or like you know the way Twitter was um, in the Arab Spring. Um, but also, you know, there'd be some backlash and it was just going to be messy, but I was, I was prepared for that until, you know, I started to see Trump like pulling ahead and, and realizing like, oh, there's a real chance he might win. Um, this doesn't match my worldview. This like doesn't, doesn't compute given the axioms that I, I've really believed for the past 10 years. Um, and oh, holy shit, maybe Facebook was actually pretty complicit in this. And like maybe, you know, in some ways accidentally, in some ways very, very directly, um, you know, having Peter Thiel on our board give millions of dollars to Trump certainly didn't help. Um, having Palmer Lucky, who you mentioned, um, funding that like bullshit meme magic, like uh, misinformation meme campaign. To- it's just for fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, Facebook gave him uh, a couple billion dollars for his goggles, and then he turns around and like funds uh, pro-Trump ads with it. I'm like, huh, they're they're not thinking about the same things I am first. They're they're putting something else first, and and you know, most vulgarly, that's just profit. But like, maybe there's a worldview that they're pushing that that I I don't support. Um, so in 2016, I had like gotten into Bernie. Um, was like, oh yeah, this this Bernie guy. I don't pay a ton of attention to politics, but um, you know, I, I like what he has to say. Um, uh, from my class background, like I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Um, most of like my my parents work in restaurants. Like they waited tables when I was a kid, so like I knew like um, have you know wealth inequality sucks and it seems to be getting worse. So I was kind of primed for that. And as Wendy said, I'd had some friends who were leftists and ended up like even writing for Jacobin and stuff. Um, I don't know why they put up with me for so long. Like I, I <laughs> don't know why they listened to my neoliberal bullshit as I, as I really uh, was so bought into it. 
Um, but then, yeah, I watched Brexit happen. I watched uh, Trump win and realized like, yeah, it's not just a few of my, my beliefs are wrong, but something like pretty fundamentally was wrong. So uh, I uh, just got, I decided, I figured everyone was going to get really active, really like figure out like politics, like after the 2016 election, like, you know, all the people who were like me were going to, had been sleeping, were going to wake up. Um, so I like Bernie, I like democratic socialism. So I Googled democratic socialist and found this thing called DSA. And it turned out the new DSA chapter was starting in my city, like just weeks after the election. So I went to that. Um, through various means, I met other tech workers who were um, becoming radicalized or had already been radicalized and were, you know, started talking to me about like labor being the, the leverage point that we should focus on. Um, like maybe less so asking companies to be nice and more realizing that companies can't do shit without us. So maybe that's the leverage point to, to focus on. Um, we can get more into detail about this, but the the most like empowering and radicalizing experience for me was definitely, um, you know, having been, uh, been meeting with tech workers at a local union office um, just to talk about labor and tech stuff and trying to figure out like what to do about that. And some of the union organizers from Unite Here one day uh, pulled me aside and said, um, so Jason, you know, we're, we're organizing service workers, um, cafeteria workers in Silicon Valley. Um, it's underground right now, but our next target is Facebook. Um, can you help us? Um, so uh, I didn't know anything about labor unions besides like they were gone and they were bad. That's what my my parents had taught me. But um, <laughs> like it's starting to learn more and more about it. And um, working with these organizers, they introduced me to a couple of the workers on the committee at Facebook um, who were or, um, starting to organize cafeteria workers there. Basically, the deal is there were like 600 or so workers a ton of them like are from Menlo Park, grew up like, you know, within a mile of Facebook's campus and uh, Facebook moves in, their rents start just skyrocketing, tripling. So they're not able to hold on to their houses. Um, the way service workers or contractors work on on tech campuses is that like, you know, they're funded, they're paid through uh, external companies like content moderators go through Accenture or something, but every kind of role is is contracted out through someone. And generally these roles are like, they're not a little bit worse than being a, a full-time employee. They're like a lot worse, right? Like they're, they don't have healthcare that's practical to pay for in, in any way. Um, so um, these workers, however, were organizing to get things like healthcare, um, a living wage, something that's, so they could hopefully stay in, um, stay in their homes and stay in the Bay Area. Um, so I helped out on that campaign in, in various ways over the, the year or two. It took them to win a union, win the contract. Um, I mean, it's very small things I did. Um, like, uh, I would go to workers' houses along with an organizer and other workers and say, like, hey, I'm, I'm a tech worker. I'm the people who you serve food to. And, like, I know we don't make eye contact with you because it's, like, this weird thing at these companies. But, like, I support you. Like, I, I hope you win. It's, it's important to me. Um, and it's it's kind of dumb how much effect that had. Like, it, it shouldn't have mattered that much. But, you know, the, the divisions uh, on a tech campus between contractors and full-time staff are just very severe. And, like, even hearing a little bit the people – um, you know, are willing to, to, to pass like through that, um, seem to have quite an effect. Um, so I, I'd also organize other full-time employees to do the same thing and like, uh, posts, you know, at Facebook, like everyone uses Facebook internally to organize and build Facebook. So like everything take, ha happens on like Facebook groups. So I started a, a Facebook group called like workers out of Facebook, um, where we would, posts updates about the union fight for service workers um when i started it we got like a few hundred people in there by the time i left it was like around three thousand facebook employees were in the group and it became kind of like a small organizing hub for full-time employees to do solidarity work with 
contractors, like all the service workers on campus, like while I was there, cafeteria workers, um, security officers, and uh, like even the bike share workers, one unions. Um, and then also there's some like work done to support uh, contractors who were, you know, still still involved in a labor struggle there. So I learned about labor through that process. And, you know, was it really drove home that like, this is the this is the thing to do like um you know both um like if facebook is gonna be a force for good in the world then like the only way that could possibly be true is if, if we can like at least fucking take care of the people who work here and if we can't do that then i shouldn't believe anything else they say um but also seeing you know groups of workers come together and and like fight and like win and actually change their lives was just uh just amazing and i was really lucky to get to be a small part of it I mean that's amazing. <laughs> and I I think it, I think it really does show as well how like Jeremy just threw in the chat solidarity is contagious with you know as the title of our episode with Astra Taylor that was something that Astra said um as well and I think that I think that holds true right I think that it it just really shows that doing this kind of direct action right which can be just as simple as like going door to door and being like hey I'm with you like you know there's all these there's all these divides in the corporation between me and you, but we are the same. We are workers. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And I, I, you, you're saying, you know, you, it was like, you know, surprising and almost dumb, like how effective that was. But I think that, I think that really shows how it's effective because it doesn't happen enough, right? It's still like a very rare thing for, for that to happen. And it's like, you know, it's such a simple, simple act. Um, to do. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I think that really shows that that kind of like on the ground direct action, organizing work, it doesn't have to be something that's like, you know, uh, insurmountable, um, you know, task to do. It, it really can be quite simple and, and direct. Wendy, I'm going I'm to throw it over to you, um, as well. I mean, I know you've written a lot about this in, in your book, but maybe give us a little bit of a, of a rundown as well about how, you know, you also started getting involved in, in the kind of politics and, and, you know, that, that kind of radicalization. But, um, in, in doing so, could you also start talking to us a little bit about, um, alternative career paths within tech, but not within the tech industry as it exists right now? Sure. Yeah. Well, my story is a lot less interesting than Jason's. I'm very much like a, like a book learner. And so I think a lot of what I learned same, was just same. through, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just through reading books, but also, you know, going to events where the kind of people who were writing these books were talking and like introducing concepts that I had never really heard of before, but that just kind of clicked when I heard them. Um, I remember going to, uh, so I moved to London in 2017 and I went to the world transformed, which is this like giant, left-wing festival. Um, and I went not really knowing anyone, but I remember the first panel I went to, David Graeber was on it and he was talking about debt. And also on the panel was um, someone talking about Deliveroo cyclists who were organizing and, you know, trying to make a, just a little bit more money so they could pay their bills. And I think just like having that um, David Graeber with his historical perspective and then having someone who is involved in a contemporary struggle, that really just like, I don't know, struck a chord with me and made me realize that the things I was reading about in books, all this stuff about income inequality and depression and debt and whatever, it wasn't just about history. It was something happening right now. There were people who were struggling against it in, you know, in this moment in, in places near where I was. And I could at least like pay attention to that and see what they were doing and figure out what I could do to help. So, I mean, on a personal level, I, I guess I got involved with a few different left projects, mostly publishing. And I 
built websites for them and helped them edit and just like did showed up to like demonstrations and like kind of did whatever I could in my limited capacity. And I just learned so much from these people and it really inspired me and it really made me realize that, you know, I don't have to be the kind of insular tech person that I was. I don't have to think of myself as primarily an engineer. I don't have to, you know, cloister myself up in this world where all I think about is like revenue and growth and just like how cool my startup is. I can instead find a community and feel part of this larger community of people who are just like trying to live, who are just trying to figure out how to live their lives and are, you know, prevented from doing so by these like monstrosities of capital that are trying to eat up more and more of the world. And so that really gave me the sense of solidarity um, that I couldn't find in just books alone, you know, just being in London, being around people, Uber drivers, delivery cyclists who were going on strike and who, you know, had a common enemy and had a thing that they were trying to fight for. That gave me such a sense of like possibility that I did not have at all in the tech industry because I think it's it's a very different kind of possibility you find in the tech industry. It's much more of an individualist one than I think the kind of collective energy that you find in, say, a labor struggle. Um, and then in terms of what I'm doing now, so I am currently working for uh, a nonprofit that provides legal aid in San Francisco. And, you know, I started this job during the pandemic. I kind of, I wanted something to do that was connected with the the struggles of local people because um, I feel like the, the problem with a lot of tech work is that it's very easy to do something that's like abstract and that feels so disconnected from what it's actually used for that, you know, you just don't, it's, it's hard to find that motivating for me. So yeah, I was lucky to find this uh, nonprofit called Open Door Legal and they just provide legal aid to people in a few parts of us of San Francisco. And so that's legal aid in the sense of, you know, that you're getting evicted and you need a lawyer who will help you fight that or your or ICE is trying to deport you or your boss is stealing your wages. So really like whatever kind of legal problem you have, um, this organization is trying this, trying to do this new kind of like universal model where it's not just like a lawyer for a specific kind of law, it's a lawyer for anything within reason, but you know, and anything that people from these parts of San Francisco who don't have the money to hire a really expensive lawyer, they can go to the SORG and most of the time it's like free or very, very low fee. Uh, and yeah, and I think it's, it's really cool to be, um, working on something where the software that I build is going to be used by people like near me and who are using and who are using the software to fight for something that is actually, you know, I think worth doing as opposed to some more just like abstract product that is just about like, returning profit into shareholders' pockets. So I'm enjoying that. Um, I wouldn't say that there are that many opportunities like that. I think it's, there aren't that many jobs that are, um, there aren't that many nonprofits that are able to have enough funding to hire people to do tech work. A lot of nonprofits just have very rudimentary, you know, tech technology stacks because it's all they can afford. Um, but I would say, yeah, if you're lucky enough to find a job opening like this, check it out. I mean, like there's a lot that you can do as someone who has any amount of familiarity with like modern technology that nonprofits just like, they just don't have anyone who can do that for a lot of the time. And so, yeah, even if, even if you're not like an expert, you know, just like see what you can do. Um, you can also volunteer and see if that's something you want to do. So would totally recommend looking at, you know, nonprofits do have their problems, but if you find something that's, I guess, focused on like, you know, local grassroots efforts, or is just actually about like serving the community in a way that is tangible, then yeah, I would definitely recommend looking into it more. Mackenzie Scott, there's a place for you to put your billions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right, right there, right there. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, that would, yeah, you know, I would change my tune if the philanthropy were to like labor unions, you know, help CWA unionize Silicon Valley and I will change my tune about the giving pledge and, <laughs> and billionaire wealth. Maybe. <laughs> no promises. No promises. No promises. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, yeah, that's really great, Wendy. And, you know, as someone who also learns through books um, a lot as well, um, and also feel, you know, and also had that kind of uh, feeling as well that like, you know, I'm an academic. It's like, it, it is, it are, you know, the things that I produce are also generally very abstract and disconnected from people. Um, and so, yeah, trying to figure out how to do something that is, you know, not only grounded in actual, you know, material conditions and the, the, the labor experiences and just life, you know, the life of people, um, but how to um, actually, you know, speak back to that somehow or, or at least advocate for, for that and, you know, provide some kind of championing um, and support and, you know, whatever that I, that I can definitely relate to that a lot. And I want to throw it over to Jason as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Drivers Cooperative and the work that you're doing there and about the organization? Uh, totally. Um, yeah, starting from what Wendy was saying, you know, Wendy reads books, so I don't have to, essentially. I'm <laughs> like definitely more on the, the practical side. And I think that's the way a lot of technologists are, right? They're practitioners. Um, and there's this uh, like kind of adage that like Silicon Valley can only build products for itself, right? It's like so good at building like the next calendar app or the next um, like I don't know chat app that like Silicon Valley people want to see. Right, the, um, the things your mom won't do for you anymore, right? That's, that's <laughs> totally. What, <laughs> that, I think that's what the the Harvard Business Review called things like Uber and Airbnb, right? Mom replacements. And and that is coming from like a not a totally bad place because it's like oh I see a problem in front of me mm-hmm. uh, I am a problem solver let me solve that problem with like technology by building products and like that's there's something good in that impulse the problem is that like we just hide from the real fucking problems so like <laughs> the the solution to that is to like go put yourself in front of like people who have real problems and and use your skills to solve them um, if if you're that kind of technologist who just loves problem solving um, so that's kind of what I, I learned on the on the labor campaigns at Facebook um, after I burned out enough on um, doing organizing and this job I can, like believed in less and less over time. I, I left, um, was looking for something to do with my skills last year. So I joined the Bernie campaign in D.C. for about six weeks, um, just doing data plumbing stuff around there until lockdown and, and the primaries ended it. Um, then I spent the past year in lockdown uh, and then trying to figure out like what is what is a good fit? Like where can I plug in to to use my skills, which is like, you know, your labor value is is, you know, quite possibly the most valuable thing you have to offer the movement. So like, where, what could I do to, to fit in there? I started researching cooperatives. Um, the new school has a class online uh, about platform cooperatives, like platform cooperatives or this idea coming kind of from academia, but there's some, some promising potential there where it's like, you know, what if like gig labor platform or what if um, photo uh, stock photo selling site, but it's owned by the actual stakeholders instead of a capitalist by if it's owned by its users or its uh, drivers, if it's um, in the case of like the driver's co-op. Um, but like you can really look at anything that's like a platform and think like, well, it sure doesn't make sense that these capitalists own this, like who actually has a stake in this? Um, and can we imagine a way that that's owned by those people instead? And what would it take to get there? Um, so cooperatives had some appeal for me um, with this, this like new interesting work being done around platforms. Um, I, uh, Let's, had done some angel investing to reveal myself as a class enemy in uh, in like the tech scene. So I know about I know how venture deals work more or less. Um, and there is 
starting to be interest in building um, funding mechanisms for cooperative structures. Um, so start.coop is one that I've become affiliated with. I, I um, kind of mentor start.coop um, cooperatives, uh, made investment, make investments through it as well. Um, and one of the portfolio companies of start.coop um, is the Drivers Cooperative, which is a, a worker-owned cooperative based out of New York City. Uh, it's about 3,000 drivers who have organized to try and um, take control of their livelihoods to, to launch a worker-owned rideshare service in New York City. Um, so that's a product that looks a lot like Uber or Lyft, but um, instead of being owned by these venture-backed companies, it's owned, you know, just by the drivers themselves who are who are worker owners. Um, so we, uh, I found them about four months ago uh, in like a kind of a mixer session between Startup Co-op and, and portfolio companies and. One of the founders pulled me aside and said, oh, you're a technologist. I, we have some tech problems. Um, I started talking to them more and more and found like they had a lot of tech problems. And they had a lot of like really great people working on the problems that they knew. Um, so the founders, like one is a drive, someone who's been a driver for decades. One is somebody who's been a labor organizer for decades. And one is um, somebody who was a GM at Uber and, and quit because she has a conscience. Um, but they, what they didn't have was like a, a lead technologist, uh, solving these tech problems. Um, so I was like, you know, I've been looking for like the right opportunity. Um, I've done management, I've done architecture. I can kind of like, you know, put together a plan for, for how to, to get out of these technology holes we're in. Um, why don't I just join? So I've been doing that about three or four months. We launched about two or three weeks ago. Um, it's too early to say how we're doing really yet, but like with, on the first day we launched the New York times front page of the business section was just all about us. Um, AOC wrote about us on Instagram, uh, a whole lot of people started requesting rides instantly and in, in typical startup fashion, like the servers all melted. Um, so we were just like in a panic for a while. Um, so uh, it's, it's very early days for this, but the model here, the thing that attracted me to it is um, this is really a group of a whole lot of workers coming together and trying to solve their problems and technology is a way they can do that. Um, so this isn't some, some asshole like me being like, you know, I'm pretty sure these people who are way far away from me have this problem. I'm going to write an app that solves all of their problems at like infinite scale from day one. Instead, it's like people who are desperately, they're using any tools in, available to them to solve these problems. And like, I am a person who solves problems using technology tools. Um, so that's what I think people need to get connected on. It's like, you have these skills that are useful. You There are so many people in the world who have problems uh, who are trying to solve them. Uh, you need to go find them and help them, basically. Hmm. You shouldn't beat yourself up too much on uh, your servers melting down. I mean, DoorDash like shit the bed for like four hours yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are always service yeah. outages with these things because, you know, demand is coming back in like non-linear ways with the uh, pandemic lockdowns ending. Mm-hmm. Labor is a big problem everywhere in restaurants and in gig work. Um, you know, I think Uber and Lyft are paying like basically record-breaking incentives and, and wages right now. Yeah, and, and and all these incentives, yeah, are, are just that, right? They're they're these like little, you know, brief bonuses just to get labor back on the market, and then that way they can immediately drop those wages again um, as well. Carrot before the stick.
both of those are, are, I think, super interesting and really inspiring um, kind of journeys as well, right? And, you know, it, it got me thinking when you were talking, Jason, as well, right? Like the name of your Substack is Venture Commune. It's all right. You, you, are, uh, you are not a class enemy. We'll, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll welcome you into the fold. None of us are peer here. Uh, <laughs> but I like that. I like Venture Commune. I like that. And it got me, uh, I like the kind of wordplay there, but it also got me thinking as well about, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think as you were saying, like we need the, we need radical technologists, right? Like, and th- and that is a big part of the of of our critique of technology, and you know, on TMK, our Luddite critique of technology is in part that uh, the technology is wasted on the on the venture capitalists, on the companies themselves, right? They their own imaginations and horizons of possibility are so extremely limited um, as to what these technologies can actually be put towards and and how they ought to be used, um, what problems they ought to be solving, and the way they understand those problems as well, right? Not just understanding, um, you know, uh, all of these things are just merely technological problems or design problems, but they are political and social problems, which can have um, included in them these kind of technological aspects in the ways that we address them. Um, it, it also got me thinking as well, and, you know, it's a, a, a free book title for someone is, uh, you know, y'all heard of Silicon Valley? What about Soviet Valley? <laughs> but also, like, I think that people don't realize that the origins of the term Soviet is that Soviets were worker councils, right? It was Lenin saying, you know, all power to the Soviets, right? Saying that, you know, that all power should be held by and channeled through workers councils, unions, right? Uh, Solidarity amongst uh, workers democratizing the companies, democratizing industry, where it is the workers themselves, the drivers in the case of the driver cooperative, right? Um, the workers in the case of, you know, even big tech companies like Google and Facebook, right? Um, be, being the ones that actually have that power that make these decisions about, uh, not only how it's organized, but the things that are made. Um, as well. So I think, I think you're right as well that, uh, when, when you said, Jason, that we need both radical technologists who escape the orbit, the gravitational pull and go on and do other things like you, um, both of you have, but also, um, people who tough it out within these companies, um, maintain that class consciousness and help build it from within, uh, to not only organize people, you know, our, our sleeper cells, our Luddite sleeper cells in Google and Facebook, wait for the wake word, <laughs> but, you know, start building those, uh, those bonds of solidarity, I think are really important steps towards building, um, the Soviet Valley. Yeah. You know, there's, it made me think of, um, you know, there's this, um, passage that Yevgeny Morozov shared today as part of his research, and it was from this Romanian communist, uh, Silvilu Brukan in 1971. And the gist of it is that Marxism without cybernetics is inefficient, but cybernetics without Marxism is purposeless. And that, you know, you can, that if we do not think about how to deploy technologies or how to critically engage, think about technologies and how to restructure them, then we're going to lose out on how to actually like structure our daily lives and also the way that te- future technologies are developed and the way that we can improve, you know, and solve on political problems and social problems and economic problems in ways that are just not through like startups that are just not through 
uh, private you know, infrastructure, or private action or, pri- or charity. But also at the same time, if we just do technological, if we just focus on the technology without like some sort of social theory or some sort of political program, then all we're doing is we're just like efficiently allocating resources. We're just like making a new scientific method um, and not actually like coming up with a vision for how our society should be organized and like what the point of being alive or, you know, working or interacting with people or living in this space or another or spending years of your life in this institution or another should be. And instead, we'll just, you know, like we have to figure out a way to create an alternative political project and alternative modes of technological development, you know, like also what you've talked about in your book, Wendy, and ways of combining the two so that we can come up with a new vision that does incorporate like the insights of leftist theories and praxis and um, a new vision for like what kind of world we want for each other. Yeah. my I think that's what I'm trying to get at with the idea of the venture commune. Um, like we, it was, I'm, I didn't coin the term. It's, it's been thrown around like casually for a while. Um, but it's this idea that like, you know, the world's got to get made. It's made by workers. We, we have real, like material challenges in front of us from from climate change to just like feeding the world um the way that technology is deployed to to solve these problems should be done very differently than the way it is done today it's it should have like well-being as as an end it should have um, like being regenerative as a value and that's something the venture capital model can't can't offer it's it's that's not the point of it um, but, you know, we've kind of lost sight of innovation without VC, uh, at least like in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I think things are normal in a lot of parts of the world still. But like, you know, if you want to start a, a coffee shop in San Francisco, you literally go get venture capital um, from like a like from a Sandhill firm. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and, but but it does work because, you know, Blue Bottle does this. And then a few years later, they expand nationally and they're acquired by Nestle. And like the, the, the owners are like super stoked about that. The VCs and the LPs are all like stoked about that. Um, but there's got to be another model where um, we can, you know, we have workers made everything. We have some capital among us. Um, we can find ways to come together to build like solutions to our own problems. Um, so that's what I'm envisioning with the venture commune. It's very, it's very early and like, you know, like VC is probably like a trillion dollar a year industry, I would guess, um, around the world. Um, like all investment in cooperatives is like, I don't know, tens of millions, maybe, um, maybe a little bit more than that. And even that looks more like debt than, than equity. So, you know, hard to count that. Um, so, uh, what we need is like some successes, some wins. I mean, we need a lot of things, but like the hope with my hope with working for the driver's cooperative is that, um, you know, if we can make this successful, if we can peel off like a chunk of Uber's traffic or whatever in New York and and become sustainable, this is going to be a model for how to do it in other industries and other regions. Um, it's going to be some, some code other people can use, uh, and like, we can start to build up um, some like, you know, Soviet controlled access to capital basically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sending this episode directly to McKinsey Scott and uh, being like, McKinsey, you can, you can fund the venture commune, put, put your money where your mouth is. Um, <laughs> but I also think it is really important as well to, to keep sight of, of the fact that these are transitional um, actions towards larger goals as well, right? The, the point of something like the driver's cooperative is not to uh, challenge and, uh, and usurp Uber, 
right? Um, to, to do this thing in, in the sense of like becoming the next Uber, right? Like you, you will disrupt Uber. Um, the driver's mm-hmm. co-op will disrupt Uber in this, but, but more so disrupt it in the sense of, uh, on one hand, show that alternative organization or, uh, or organizations are possible. Um, while at the same time, um, you know, discrediting Uber, right? Taking mm-hmm. away attention from, from Uber, um, and this model of VC innovation as, as, you know, we kind of, as we talked about at the top of the show, right, is really, um, right now set up as the only way that innovation can happen is through this VC model, a venture capitalist model, um, versus a venture commune model, um, which, you know, I, I think those, I think those kinds of alternatives are really important. And what's even more important is putting them into action, showing that they, uh, that they can be done, that they are possible. Um, I just want to point out as well, Ed's quote that, you know, from Evgeny about, um, uh, you know, the communists say they're talking about, uh, cybernetics and Marxism also brings to mind, um, an essay by Aaron Beninov, uh, in Logic Magazine, How to Make a Pencil, right? Which, uh, you know, we, we are big supporters of Aaron's work here in large part because I think that he is, you know, in a, in a very, you know, academic and political economist side doing something, you know, creating the arguments for, um, stuff that, uh, you, Wendy and Jason are, are actually doing, which is showing that, uh, you know, these technologies with cybernetics, IT, right? Whatever, like these technologies, um, not only can be put towards different uses, but they should and they must be put towards different uses. I think that um, I, you know, I because of Aaron's work, I have become increasingly more and more um, interested in and persuaded by this kind of resurgence of a, of a, a scientific socialism, right? That looks at how do we. Um, you know, how do we organize an, a, an economy, a very complex system through things like cybernetics, through things like IT, um, that, and, and, you know, that being necessary towards, towards doing that without also trying to do, maybe this will start rolling into our outro here. Um, but, you know, we're on the Patreon feed where we've been doing every other week, a kind of book club episodes, looking at, uh, Langdon winners, you know, fundamental book autonomous technology and in a, a a forthcoming chapter that we'll be talking about chapter six you know in a couple of weeks um, he has a lot of really great analysis but critiques as well of um of of the russian revolution and lenin's conception of how to put capitalist technologies to use for um revolutionary socialist ends and part of the problem there was thinking that you can take something like taylorism um and and just apply that one to one to you know you 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 have a capitalist factory you switch it on and you switch it off again as a socialist factory but you don't change any of the organization or any of the technologies um there winner's argument is that was a you know a major downfall towards the way in which the soviet union actually was just trying to do capitalism but better um but what we need is not to do capitalism, but to take these technologies and do something very different with them. This is an OG TMK episode. We've gone super long because the conversation has just been so extremely stimulating and fascinating. And there's just like so many more things that we could possibly talk about. Thanks. Yeah, I, I agree with you about um, even like a cooperative or, or anything else we're doing right now being a transitional move and a transitional demand. Um, we have to fight on every front. Um, you know, platform cooperativism is one thing, but a, 
a term I also hear people use kind of tongue in cheek is platform expropriation, right? Like mm-hmm. we want to like expropriate these platforms and, and use them for our own ends or for, for the public good. Um, so we're going to be have to, we're going to have to be fighting like within companies, um, through labor struggles. We're going to have to be fighting, um, against companies by, by building alternatives that are cooperatively owned or managed. We're going to have to be fighting within the state to regulate and break up and expropriate these, um, these monopolies that, that control the, the course of technology today and have done just a shit job of steering it. Um, so yeah, it's, um, like, I, I guess uh, I want to advocate for people to find the right place in the struggle for them and, and apply themselves to it. And a good rule is like, you know, how far away from like a worker with a real problem are you? And can you get closer to them and uh, make their problems, your problems, if you're a technologist and you have the means to. Hmm. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, I've really, yeah, enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for hosting us. Thanks for having me back on. And thanks for, you know, just like shooting the shit with, with me and Jason for the last like hour and a half of listening to us complain about uh, our how much we've hated this industry. But how, you know, I mean, how much we, we love the idea of what it could be, but just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that comes through in both of your, the work that y'all do, right? Like it didn't have to be this way. And it is like in many ways a great betrayal of like what got you interested in it in the first place. And also like the glimpses that you saw maybe at one time or another of what it could be either in practice with or in solidarity or in like reading, right? And there can there can be another world, you know? So it, it was really great talking to you. I think complaints are just as, or, or, you know, they're not to be dismissed, right? Because they're how you, they're part of like, you know, what you're thinking through and how you got to this point. Right. Now you don't have to worry about chasing us away. We're the ones that chase other people away with our bullshit. So <laughs> Y'all just don't understand disruption. That's the real problem. You just don't understand. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the whole reason we started Team K is to just to try to understand disruption and innovation. <laughs> yeah. Q2, our sponsor, uh, our spawn con where we talk about disruption. You've heard of disruption now brought to you by Masayoshi Sun's Vision Fund 2.0. <laughs> episode 80 and 81 i I mean this this has just been fantastic so i do i want to thank wendy and jason again um we'll throw links to abolish silicon valley and the episode description everyone needs to if you haven't already and if you haven't already what are you doing come on you're listening to tmk and you haven't grabbed wendy's book yet come on uh grab wendy's book read wendy's book uh you know, follow both Wendy and Jason on Twitter. We'll throw links to all that. We'll throw a link to Venture Commune, Jason's Substack newsletter in the episode description as well. Um, and, you know, I want to thank everybody here for, for listening, um, especially all of our disaffected and discontented tech workers. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope that we're, you know, I hope that you have seen some of yourself in, uh, Wendy and Jason's, um, stories and journey, um, and, and taken some inspiration from that as well. Um, so thank you for listening and, you know, people can find us as well at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where we give you another premium episode every single week. As I, uh, mentioned earlier, right? Um, we are, uh, this week's premium episode will be looking at chapter five of Langdon Winner's Autonomous Technology. Um, but also, you know, more, more deep dives on the Patreon. So find us there. Um, and, and I think that'll do it. Thank everyone for listening and we'll see y'all then later. Adios.
This machine. Kill. 